We come with the best of intentions, but what we do is we operate out of our assumptions. And we've got this association between vulnerable children and orphanages that's very long-standing and quite ingrained in our Western cultures. And although that narrative may have been undone when we talk about our own domestic child protection systems, it's very much still intact when we think about issues of child vulnerability overseas. Welcome to the MindShift podcast. I'm Krish Kandaya. Around the world, there are around 5.4 million children in orphanages. Each year, millions of pounds and dollars are sent to support orphanages and thousands of people volunteer or visit them. The best evidence shows that orphanages are not good for children and there are far better ways for vulnerable children to be cared for. A mind shift is needed and that's why this podcast exists. Rebecca Nape works for the Better Care Network and to be honest, she is one of the global experts when it comes to child welfare reform. God has put a passion in her bones to make sure that the world's children get the care that they need. And Rebecca is meticulous. She's laser-like in her focus. She has an amazing ability to think through strategy, political engagement, church engagement, and to bring subject area expertise to this issue of child welfare reform. Get ready. Hold on to your seats. Rebecca speaks quickly and it's full of insight. And I know you're going to enjoy this interview. So I am sat here in a hotel in Chiang Mai next to Rebecca Nape, who is the Senior Technical Advisor for Better Care Network. We're going to be talking about family-based care. So could you help us think about some of your strongest abiding memories from your childhood? Yeah, it's hard for me to think about one particular standout memory, but I think when I think about childhood, some of the things that carry the strongest emotional weight or pull for me are memories of Christmas time, family holidays, Easter. It's all those memories where the whole family comes together and we're eating and we're spending time around the kitchen table, but everybody's there from grandparents to aunts and uncles and cousins and parents and siblings. And there's not one particular moment, but all the ones that flash through my mind have that kind of family dynamic to them. Actually, as you say, that as an element of institutional care that I hadn't really thought of before. We're not just separating children from their mum and dad. We're actually separating them from all those other extended family networks too. They're not getting to celebrate festivals or birthdays with aunties and grandparents and cousins and nephews and nieces. So yeah, that's 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 very interesting. How were you activated to care for vulnerable children? How did that become part of your life story? I was actually living and working in Cambodia. I had recently arrived um, and my intention was actually to work on a quite a different issue and not with children at all. And I was in the middle of doing a research project on a particular aspect of Cambodian culture, looking at anthropology. And I got a call from one of the biggest orphanages in the country from the then director saying, you know, you're a young single girl. Would you mind if we sent a young single girl to come and live with you? Uh, She's coming out of the orphanage. She needs somewhere to land. She needs to be around somebody else who can kind of look out for her and uh, I didn't think much of it because she was around my age just a few years younger than me at the time and I thought it would be like having a flatmate and when she came and we shared an apartment together and I got to know her I got to know all her siblings some of which had already left the orphanage some of whom were in the process of leaving or left shortly after she did and it was through her that I just saw 
all the issues that we know about from research playing out in the life of this young girl and her family and really became aware of something's really critically wrong with this story, with this situation, and it was all stemming back to their experience in growing up in, in an institutional care environment, right. despite that being what the government considered one of the best orphanages in the country at the right. time. Right. And so that was what really turned my attention to it. And I went looking for the information. I went looking for the research. I went to the government looking for the answers. Where are the family-based care alternatives? and that kind of set up a trajectory for me that has, you know, played out over the last 20 years. So that was your mind shift moment with orphanages. So just wind back a bit further. Before that girl comes to live with you, what did you think of orphanages? I um, I had a very neutral understanding of orphanages. I, like many other people, grew up in the church in Australia. I had had a little bit of exposure to the concept of orphanages through visiting missionaries and different things. And I thought of them as positive. I thought of them as, you know, places that cared for children. I guess I subconsciously subscribed to all the myths of those children actually being orphans and having no parents, not having anybody to care for them, these being safe environments, you know, seeing pictures of children in orphanages who looked happy and looked loved and visitors coming. So all of those positive things we understand to be part of growing up in an orphanage. So I didn't have any personal experience with an orphanage that I'd ever visited one or anything like that. But I guess I had a perspective that these were environments that were good and were also highly necessary. From talking to people, that seems to be the general opinion. No one questions. Everyone thinks this is just the normal way that we care for vulnerable children. Even though in Western contexts, no one uses orphanages in the way that we use it in the rest of the world. So it's a funny thing that we're not kind of putting two and two together. That We would say in England, the penny hasn't dropped. A lot of it is because that information that challenges those myths and those long-standing assumptions hasn't always come to the forefront. And it's when people start to really understand that what they understood, that these children are orphans, that there are no alternatives for them, isn't actually true, mm. and that it's not in their best interest, that you start to go, oh, okay, now I can reflect on it from another perspective, from my own perspective. What would I want if my parents you know, weren't around when I was a child? Well, I would want to live with my extended family. Yeah. What would I want for my own children? Yeah. Well, I would want them to go to their grandparents or their aunt and their uncle, and you start to realise mm. and make connections that you hadn't previously thought about and therefore made. Mm. It's interesting it was through a personal connection, a young woman coming to live with you. That was the opener for you. What did you discover about the Cambodian care system through this experience of this young woman living with you? I found out that there was a very long-standing cultural heritage of children being cared for in extended families, but that it was informal. And there was a semblance of foster care in terms of children living with non-relatives, but again, it was informal and there wasn't a formalised family-based care system. So there were you know, a lot of orphanages in the country. At the time that that took place, it was when the first generation of care leavers were leaving the orphanages that had been set up in the mid-90s by the first cohort of missionaries primarily that had come into the country in that transitional period. And so these were the children that grew up there or are now exiting. And so I think it was that period of time where you were first able to really see what the impacts were on children. And so institutional care was still the dominant type of care in terms of alternative care, particularly formal alternative care. Having said that, though, a lot of these orphanages weren't registered. They weren't part of the government system. They weren't being monitored or part of the sort of oversight mechanisms, but they were being used to provide alternative care. But in most cases, to respond to issues such as poverty and disability and you know other issues that place a lot of stress on families 
and with the deficit of alternatives those children were going into these orphanages so that was the situation at the time. Well there's a whole bunch of things to unpack there so the 1990s was when there was a growth in orphanages in Cambodia is that right? In the mid-1990s is when the first ones came in Mm. and there was actually pretty strict limitations on what type of visas foreigners could get so it, it was tied to the types of work they could do and that was one of them was providing orphanage care and then we saw a massive growth in the number of institutions actually unfold throughout the 2000s and you can track it in Cambodia alongside of the growth in tourism and that's what really showed us there that a lot of the increase in the number of institutions and the number of children going into care was actually being driven by the demand of tourists and volunteers who wanted to come and support these children and help these children and even the locations in Cambodia you can see that correlation in that when the international airport went into Siem Reap which is in the north we started to see a lot of orphanages popping up in that area because it became more accessible. And so the major growth actually kind of unfolded throughout the 2000s. Wow, wow. I find that mind-blowing in that as I think about orphanages, I'm thinking institutions that were set up hundreds of years ago in Africa, again by Christian missionaries that had taken probably the workhouse model that they'd seen in the UK and they'd adapted into kind of more loving and supportive environments with people like George Muller in, in Bristol and that got exported to places like Africa and India. But that was hundreds of years ago. I mean, we've known, well, for longer than the 90s that these are not great. So how did it happen? Help us understand well-intentioned missionaries wanting to serve God and help the poor. What did they see? What was the care availability before they arrived? Uh, Most of the care that was there prior to that was in families. Mm. It was the normative cultural system of families and extended families that in Cambodia, in a country that at the time and even now, didn't necessarily have all of the social safety nets in place that you would in a more developed country or in a country with more economic resources. And it was the extended family that provided those safety nets for families and children. And so children would move around between extended family households as a way to manage crisis periods and stress. And then you had this informal system of foster care as well. And so that was the normative system. That's how people coped with family crisis or stresses. Now, that doesn't mean that certain children would therefore have been not have been able to access adequate care. There were certainly gaps in that. But again, the influx of orphanages sort of overrided this very normal, cultural mechanism and coping mechanism that was family-based care informal albeit but family-based care and again it wasn't really meeting the demands of children who needed alternative care it became the mechanism by which we addressed poverty and issues of access to other services such as education and so here we are using what is essentially a child protection response to issues that are actually sitting in in the poverty category of issues affecting family or disability or education. So the response didn't really match the needs. But I think what was happening is we come with the best of intentions. You know, missionaries or whether it's non-Christian people as well, whoever it might be, they go out, they go and set up these programs with all the best intentions to serve children. But what we do is we operate out of our assumptions. We operate out of what we've been exposed to, you know, from probably the time we were children in our churches or in other environments and we've got this association between vulnerable children and orphanages that's very long-standing and quite ingrained in our western cultures and although that narrative may have been undone when we talk about
had our own domestic child protection systems, it's very much still intact when we think about issues of child vulnerability overseas. And so we operate out of those assumptions and rather than challenging them or rather than approaching our work from more of an empirical basis and looking at research, looking at what the gaps in systems are and really trying to discover what is the best approach to respond to the actual needs, we go out with a very fixed idea of what we're going to do that is driven by these assumptions. So let me play a theory out on you and I'm no historian so I'm just trying to piece together what I think I've seen. So Bristol, George Muller and the kind of faith mission movement, this was a man who trusted God and never asked for any money and God provided for him miraculously and at one stage they had 3,000 children living in an orphanage in Bristol and there's pictures of it in the Muller Museum and the Muller movement no longer does orphanages they've kind of moved on but I'm trying to imagine you know 200 years ago in Bristol there wasn't bubonic plague there wasn't a kind of mass extinction event that would mean mums and dads all died Mm. leaving 3,000 orphan orphan children in Bristol so I think it was poverty again that was the issue and even if all 3,000 of these children had lost both their parents the chances that they also lost all their aunties and uncles and all their grandparents so I'm nervous that we may have a bit of a cultural blind spot that Christians thought they could do a better job of raising poor people's children than poor people could And so it was a kind of class blindness that said it's safer for these children to be in a Christian institution where we can feed them and clothe them and actually expose them to the gospel. And that's a more important, more urgent win than keeping these children with their families. And I'm nervous that Christian missionaries took that same mindset when they went to other cultures. And so there was family-based care in the 90s and 2000s in Cambodia, but we thought it would be better for these kids to be Christianized in a Christian environment. Now, is that a really unfair reading or what do you think? I think there's a lot of truth in that and I think there's a number of things that play into that. Firstly, I think from a Western cultural perspective, we ascribe a lot of value to the economic aspect of life and of poverty. And so when we think about poverty, we think about it in terms of the quality of our housing, we think about it in terms of consumerism and materialism, and that's an indicator of wealth to us and we give a lot of value to that and our western culture leans towards individualism and so we tend to ascribe less value to relationships to family connections and things like that so when you're entering a culture that you may not fully understand yet what you can see is the economic poverty what you can't necessarily see is the strength of the family connections and relationships and the importance of that in a culture and so i think a lot of it is we are using a cultural lens that is external to those countries and we are overlaying it and we are making judgment calls on whether or not those situations we see children in are good or safe or adequate. They might be very normal in that country and they might be perfectly adequate for that child to receive appropriate care. But we look at it and we think if I was living in that environment, I would be poor and I would be miserable because of a different value system. I think that plays into it. I also think that missions you know, in the faith-based world, in the Christian sector and in others has come out of a charity model. And that charity model promotes inherently unequal relationships. It promotes one where I am the saviour and someone else is the person who needs to be rescued. It is a narrative of inequality. And it doesn't look at the structural justice issues that actually put families in situation of risk and in crisis. It looks at it and ascribes all that blame to the individual, to the person. And so we don't do that intentionally and we don't do that consciously. But we look at it and that's, I think, part of why we might look at parents who are in poverty and we think it would be better if we raised their children because there's an, like almost a bit of a ascribing blame to that parent or 
blame to that parent situation rather than recognising there are a whole lot of factors mm. that are structural mm. that create injustice that mean that that family has been placed in a position of disadvantage, not by their own fault necessarily. And therefore what we need to do is address the structural inequalities so that these families can thrive on equal footing with mm. other families versus extract those children yeah. and yeah. try to bring them into an environment we think is better. I'm going to ask you a very awkward question now. So as far as I understand, there is a history in Australia about the church, Aboriginal people and institutions. For listeners that aren't aware of that, could you just give us a little overview of what happened? And then maybe why didn't we learn about that when we then took a similar model to somewhere like Cambodia? So in Australia, we have the history of the Stolen Generation, which is our Indigenous and Aboriginal people, whereby Australia instituted a policy of basically removing children from some of the stations, from Aboriginal families, and placing them with white Australian families. And part of the theory was that they would be basically bred out. But the immediate theory for children was that they would be better off, that they would be better cared for, that they would have their needs better met if they were living in white families, white Australian families versus living with their own families within their own Indigenous culture. And that created so much intergenerational damage in Australia in terms of the impact on those children who are obviously now adults in terms of the impact on their children and so forth. And Australia has come to the realisation over time that that was an incredibly harmful policy. It was an incredibly harmful response, both in terms of the removal and in terms of the institutionalisation of those children. And it is interesting to think, why hasn't that learning been then applied Mm. to the way that we are engaging with children overseas? And I think that there is a cognitive dissonance that factors into this, where we don't necessarily look at our own learning from our own context and actually think about how that applies to other situations. It's like when we think about it overseas, we don't question, we don't bring in logic, we don't bring in the rational thinking, we just accept what we understand to be the case or the assumptions that we've grown up with overseas. And so we're not connecting the dots. But when we do connect the dots for people in Australia, when we bring them back to that position, when we get them to reflect on that, it's very immediate in terms of their ability to go, oh my goodness, of course, how come we didn't see this? But I think that's the nature of assumptions. Mm. It's the nature of cognitive dissonance. It's like it blinds you to the logic of things and and it, it stops you from making those connections. But as soon as they're made, the impact is very evident on people. And actually, one of the things that we found quite catalytic in terms of getting some of the Australian churches to really think about the institutionalisation of of children overseas, Cambodia and beyond, and their role in that as donors or volunteers or whatever it might be, was the fact that we had a royal commission in Australia over the last number of years that was looking at the treatment of children in institutional care. And a huge body of that was actually looking at it in the context of institutions run by churches. And so we had to really face up to the fact that it failed these children in Australia. Why do we think it's going to be any different when we export that overseas into countries and contexts that are even less regulated? And so that has been a really sad unfolding of events, but it has been something that has caused the Australian church to reflect. I mean, we're talking about mind shifts and it is interesting that we can have a very similar situation in our backyard, as it were, and then not apply that elsewhere. Is there a role for the international community? So I remember in the middle of the apartheid issues in South Africa, the church was 
quite resistant to external voices saying this is out of order and people just say oh you're just not South African you don't understand our context how can an international community play a role in that or, or is it does it have to be indigenous learning do people have to come up with this realization themselves No, I think it's both. I think what we need to do is connect the information to the context. And so I think in Australia and in other countries for the church to really grapple with these ideas, I think we need it brought within our own framework. We need to look at it through our theological lenses because that's where all of our assumptions sit. Those assumptions about orphanages, about how we care for children overseas, they've all been kind of framed with the way we have understood or interpreted theology, missions, missions, you know, in terms of theory, but also in terms of practice. And I think if that information is brought into those spaces and re-looked at in those types of forums and spaces, that's when the church can really engage with the information if it's brought from outside of the sector, uh, brought from the international community in. But it has to connect with that context Mm. because in my experience, when it doesn't, that's when we reject it in its entirety. But when we can see it within those frameworks that are our sense-making frameworks, then we're much more open to them. I think you're right. I think one of the things that used to happen in the South African context was people saying, oh, oh, that's politics, not theology. We need to keep Mm -hmm. these things very separate. But actually, if you keep them separate, your politics just implicitly affects your theology. While if you bring it out into the open, at least you can then talk it through. So issues of race and gender and identity need to be looked at through a theological lens and our theology needs to be looked through an identity, gender, race lens as well. We need that kind of in-the-round conversation and I think that's how mind shift can happen. But you've had some just tremendous wins in this space. I mean, that Royal Commission that you mentioned was significant, but actually you were at the heart of quite an exciting movement that's seen some real change both within the practice of the church and at a legislative level. Can you talk us through what happened? So initially, when you talk about the practice level with the church, at the time I was the joint CEO of the Australian Christian Churches International, which is the ACC's Missions and Development Agency. And after coming back from 11 years in Cambodia, having all those realisations, you know, working from the point of just having my aha moment to actually working to establishing family-based care systems in that country, I came back to Australia and looked in our own backyard and realised I hadn't taken anybody else on that journey with me. And so really began that process of taking the ACC as a movement through that change process, bringing awareness to our leadership at all tiers and levels of this issue and then developing a whole framework by which we shifted the practices of the denomination and all of the missionaries and development partners that were working as a part of the ACC. And so that was quite a long and intense process, but we saw some amazing shifts and some really amazing practices coming out of that, which was fantastic. But then we started really looking at the regulatory and the legislative environment in Australia, realising that we spend a lot of time when we're looking at care reform in talking to governments in countries like Cambodia and looking at their laws and their policies and their practices and their service systems. But the reality is a lot of what is happening is being driven by people outside of the country. In Australia, for example, funding orphanages in Cambodia, sending volunteers over, short-term missions trips, school students, all sorts of things. And that constant stream of resource being directed towards institutional care was undermining the government's efforts to reform their own system. So we started looking at, we actually need to stop it on our side of the border. And we need to take responsibility as a country for the role that we're playing through our charity sector, through our faith-based sector, through our schools and education sector, and the impact that that is having on children in other countries. 
And so we started mapping out all the legislation and the regulation in Australia, mapping out the spaces where this was taking place and looking at what opportunities there were. And that sort of led us on, you know, a strategy that lasted for quite a number of years there. But what resulted from that was we were able to see orphanage trafficking included in the scope of our modern slavery legislation, which has only recently come out. So that is now recognised as a form of modern slavery and orphanage tourism is recognised as a risk for modern slavery. And that means that companies in Australia that meet that threshold now need to actually vet their supply chains and their operations if they have any connection with overseas orphanages to assess and look for modern slavery and then report on that. So that's been a fantastic win. What else has happened is that we were able to work with our Charities Commission and they released what's called our External Conduct Standards, a new set of regulation that applies to all charities, including churches, because churches are registered as charities as well, and it applies to their overseas activities. And so we were able to include in that some standards that mean that if they are funding or sending volunteers to overseas orphanages, they have to make sure there are certain provisions in place that is compliant with the laws of that country and Australia, that those orphanages are registered, meeting minimum standards, and it really does look at the harm associated with orphanage tourism and volunteering, as well as what happens when we fund overseas orphanages when they are unregistered or unregulated or institutionalising children when the removal from their families is actually not warranted or necessary. And so that was another really big win in terms of trying to sort of stop it happening on our side of the border so that flow on effect changes in Cambodia and other countries. Our government released a campaign called the Smart Volunteering Campaign and that was a public awareness raising campaign to try to encourage Australians to think differently about volunteering and to discourage them from engaging in orphanage volunteering or orphanage tourism of any form. And so there has been a number of really quite high profile and quite exciting wins and we're seeing other countries starting to look at that and see what they can replicate Mm. which is also great. Well, even in the UK, we hosted Senator Linda Reynolds, who's been a real champion Mm -hmm. for this movement, and having her in the UK, in Parliament, with a whole bunch of politicians and church leaders, that was a mind-shift moment for many of our politicians. So the ripple effect of what you've been doing has been absolutely fantastic. I want to take you back on a couple of things, though. So you've been helping, well, various denominations and church pastors have a mind-shift moment on this. Just talk me through some of the things that you've learned over the years. What are the things that help someone who has been supporting an orphanage, has been sending volunteers? What are the kind of key messages that awake them to see there's another way of doing this? Yeah, I think one of the key things to start with is to help them to understand what is real, what is actual, what is the real situation of these children. The statistic that we all know and that we all use around 80% of children in orphanages having one or both living parents and the vast majority of children Mm. in institutions have extended family is a real wake-up call to, to pastors in my experience because, again, the assumption is that there are no alternatives for these children. And when they realise that that's not the case, that is a huge aha moment in terms of shifting that mindset. The other thing that I think has been really critical is helping pastors to see that we're not challenging your vision, but there is a very strong distinction that needs to be made between what a vision is and what a mission is. A vision is what you want to see happen, and your vision is to see children receive appropriate care and love and be in a supportive environment and to have their needs met. Your mission is how you approach that. And so when we're talking to you about shifting, we're not saying throw away your vision because most pastors will tell you that vision came from God. But what we're asking them to do is really separate out their vision from their mission or methodology and to look at a new way of approaching how they achieve that mission or what contribution they make to that mission, realizing that in most cases, 
institutions cannot help you meet that vision because a child's needs cannot be met in an institution. They need a family. And so that whole distinction and then helping them to really think that through has been something in my experience that's been very helpful in reducing those defences and allowing pastors to really think through what are some of the alternatives. And also just being really honest and transparent about your own learning processes. You know, nobody wants to hear from some arrogant expert telling us all what we need to do, but to be humble about We've all gone through this moment at some point. We all had our aha moment because we all grew up in the same cultural framework that created this as a normal set of assumptions. And so it's just about making sure that information and that knowledge continues to flow and that we do the best with what we have. When we've got new knowledge, we have a responsibility as Christians to do something better with it. And so it's not shameful to change. It's not shameful to have to say, we, maybe we made a mistake or maybe we can approach things differently. What's important is what we do with what we yeah, know. And so I think that's also been helpful in just saying we're not blaming, we're not shaming, we're not condemning anyone. We're trying to bring new information forward that'll help us all do what yeah. we want to do better. I think that's right. And I've seen when you lead with vulnerability, you know, I've been there. I've had the same assumptions that you have. Here's the journey I went on. I think it does come with a greater sense of humility and more traction. I mean, the other mind shift for me in the way that you work. So you were working for a denomination, a missions organization, and the transition that you would then seek to influence government policy, that's a big deal. Most mission agencies I know are pretty much focused on the Christian bubble, and we're going to change our practices, and we're going to influence how Christians do things. But you transition to try to shape the way that your nation you know has policies in this space how did that happen I think it was just a testament to the ACC and to the leadership of the ACC to their openness to really looking at impact and saying you know that may not be the traditional space that we play in but if that's where the impact needs to be made then that's where we need to go and I think it's also recognizing that God positions Christians in all spheres of society to have influence in a range of different ways and so to box ourselves in and to say because we're Christians or because we work in a mission space we need to stay in that lane and that we cannot have influence elsewhere I think is too limited it's too narrow-minded and thankfully the ACC didn't see that but it was certainly new for them it wasn't a space they had played in before and it was an exciting space to see that unfolding and very much found the leadership to be very releasing and very empowering of going after that. It was also really interesting being in some of those conversations with government because yeah again you're not used to necessarily having the Christians as being the ones at the forefront leading some of those changes and you know we had a network there were other colleagues that were obviously involved in all of that but I think again it's also showing that there's a God factor in that there's a degree to which you know when you know where the change needs to be made and you're leaning on God for wisdom and for openings for door openings to see that happen then well anything's possible Mm. oh this is fascinating I could definitely speak to you all day let me just ask you I suppose some quick fire questions so what are the biggest challenges to bring in change in some of the care systems that you're working with I know you've got a history with Cambodia but now your role with Better Care Networks just releasing you on a kind of wider stage what are some of the biggest challenges that you're coming across yeah I think the development of strong systems is something that I think is a challenge but also something that is really critical and something that I'm very focused on at the moment is really helping all of us that are involved in any way in children's care to really understand that we have to collaborate we have to bring our efforts to a system strengthening level because one of the things that's going to undo us or limit our effectiveness is if we're not coordinated, if we aren't networking our services into a systems approach and really building those systems because children's 
needs can't be met unless there are strong systems that wrap around them and wrap around their families to support them. So moving beyond that kind of program level to really going after systems strengthening country by country is really important but a big challenge. I think part of seeing that happen is the redirection of resources and that remains a huge challenge and that's why it's so critical not only to be having these conversations with people who are running orphanages or people who are providing programs and support to children in those countries but to be talking to their donors to be talking to the churches and the missions agencies that send people send money send resource because unless that resource and be that human resources or financial resources is directed towards the transition we are undermining that transition process that reform process and And so that's really challenging because that means that these issues are now cross-border. We're talking about connecting issues in Kenya to UK practices, to Australia, to multiple countries. And so trying to get everybody on the same page is a huge challenge, but it's incredibly important if we're going to see real reforms. And I think your mapping exercise in Australia revealed some pretty scary statistics. What were the numbers in terms of how many percent of Christians were supporting orphanages? And were you able to put a dollar amount on how much it is? We weren't able to put a dollar amount on it, but we did two different studies. One of them was specific to the faith-based sector, whereby we included a set of questions in a longitudinal uh, research piece that's done every five years. And that showed us that around about 50 of churches in Australia across 22 different denominations support overseas orphanages financially. If you dissected that by denomination, it went up into the 60s, uh, 60 plus percent in terms of Pentecostal denominations and was a little bit lower in some of the other denominations. But basically every second church is sending resources over to an orphanage. We didn't quite have the data set in place or there's not the reporting mechanisms that we would have needed to quantify that. But obviously, if you're talking about every second church, you're talking about a huge amount of resource. And the mechanism for that money to be raised, are we talking about orphan choirs and sponsorship of places in orphanages? Is it trips? How is most of that money being activated from the church? Yeah, we actually, in the research, we actually did capture that. There was questions that helped us understand the conduits and how they were sending it. And it's all of those things. It's individual churches who have partnerships with overseas orphanages who raise money on their behalf through their missions programs, through their conferences. It's missionaries going to churches and speaking about overseas orphanages and then receiving you know, love offerings or receiving donations from the church. It is organisations who operate overseas bringing choirs of children over who then tour church by church in different states in Australia and those events all raise money for overseas orphanages. It's Christian charities who are going into churches and setting up child sponsorship programs or appeals or things like that and then raising money through charities. So there's a number of different mechanisms by which churches are funding overseas orphanages. A lot of the conversation out there in the sector on Christian engagement in care reform is pretty negative. They see there was a piece in the New York Times and in the Guardian that basically labelled Christians in this space as naive do-gooders, that we're well-meaning, you know, we'll throw money at a problem, we don't bother doing the research, we're just kind of moved by a sob story. What role do you think, what positive role do you think the church can play in the reform of these institutions? I think the church has a huge positive role to play and I think that those criticisms are slightly unfair and slightly biased in that you know often they are directed towards the Christian community because the Christian community percentage wise is probably the bulk of the funders and the supporters of overseas institutions but personally I think that's more reflective of Christians being more activated to support people who are vulnerable overseas it's part of our theology it is part of our calling as Christians and so I think 
think it's partly driven by the fact that there's probably just more Christians than there are non-Christians who are just engaging in that kind of work. And so that's where you're seeing the percentages come in. I think the exact same, you know, naivety can be seen in the non-Christian world, but perhaps it's to a lesser percentage on that basis. So I don't think that that is a fair reflection, but I think what it does speak to is the good intention in the heart of the Christian community that just needs to be redirected. We don't want to kill that. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to support these children. But if we look a little bit deeper into the theology of that, if we look a little bit deeper into what the Bible actually says, what we're going to understand is that we're actually called to support children in a way that defends their rights and defends their right in particular to be in a family. And if we can just tap into that and redirect all of that good intention with a little bit more knowledge and information, I think we have a huge power that can be tapped into and unleashed to see great good come from that and great reforms come from that. So I think the faith-based community has a huge role to play and should continue to play a role. We just need to step back and really assess and really evaluate how we outwork that calling and that mandate to make sure it's in the best interest of children. Every time I spend time speaking with Rebecca, I'm astounded by the scale of her vision. And I don't know if you're listening and you're thinking, do you know what, I'd love to be part of that global initiative. Maybe your next step is to get upskilled. Maybe it's to become an expert in an area of welfare reform. Maybe it's to go to university and do a degree or a second degree. Maybe it's to train yourself up as a social worker. Maybe it's to become wise about what's happening at a global scale for children. But whatever that next step is, take it because you could be a person of influence in this area, just like Rebecca is. One first step on that might be to go to the homecomingproject.org where you can sign up for our learning journey. You can be upskilled with the basics of what you need to know in order to make a difference for children in orphanages around the world. And you can also tune in to the next edition of the Mind Shift podcast. Thanks. See you soon.